Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And for more than 10 years with SNN, I've been doing interviews with microcap management teams at investor conferences globally, as well as online. Our SNN Live CEO video interviews are meant to pique interest, and then one can discover more by going to that company website. But personally, I always have more questions I want to ask. On this show, I'll be chatting with public company executives from microcap companies, and we'll dive deeper into companies that are rarely profiled. Microcap traditionally is overlooked, unloved, and absolutely never featured on legacy financial media outlets unless something material is going on that's a good story. With my experience interviewing management teams, having interviewed most of them before, I've built up a network of companies, so there will be no shortage of content. Furthermore, this is an opportunity for me to showcase some of the qualitative lessons I've learned from guests on the Planet Microcap podcast. You can expect high quality interviews with management teams that may have exposure to broader macro trends that you may never have thought of. One of the many reasons why I love the microcap space. So if you love microcaps and especially love learning about companies before the professionals do, let's start our due diligence. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party product services or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Robert De Laurent, CEO and Chairman of Excel Brands Inc. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is XELB on NASDAQ. Excel Brands Inc. is a media and consumer products company engaged in the design, production, marketing, live streaming, wholesale distribution, and direct-to-consumer sales of branded apparel, footwear, accessories, fine jewelry, home goods, and other consumer products, and the acquisition of dynamic consumer lifestyle brands. This is a company that doesn't put out a whole lot of news other than your standard Qs and Ks, and, and yet has done the conference circuit, and, and I've known about it for some time. So I wanted to take this opportunity to learn more about Excel Brands from Robert, as well as key takeaways of the recent Isaac Mizrahi transaction, his opinion on what the future of retail looks like in one to three years, and what is live streaming and why is Excel so excited about this opportunity? With that, please enjoy my conversation with Robert DeLoren, CEO and Chairman of Excel Brands, Inc. Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is Robert DeLoren. He is the CEO and Chairman of Excel Brands. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is X-E-L-B on NASDAQ. Robert, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Thank you, Bob. I'm doing well and uh, happy to be here with you. It's great to have you. I, I got to tell you, I appreciate I, I, you calling me Bob. You know, I, I, I'm going to get I'm going to get some uh, SEO as Bob Kraft uh, just from this interview alone. So it's interesting. <laughs> you started with Bobby and um, most of my old friends still call me Bobby. So I, I'm, I, I always say Robert professionally. And then when we're at the bar, it's Bobby. Yeah. I, I try. You know. I understand. So, <laughs> so I've known Excel for a while. 
Um, I we're literally just saying offline how I've seen the company present at a number of financial conferences over the years. So this is a real pleasure for me to finally get a chance to interview and learn a little bit more, just you know, in in this kind of format. So uh, to start us off, you know, what would you say is what would you say the company does in that one sense that best describes Excel? So it, it's um, it, it's actually very clear, and it has been since we started the company. Um, we are a media and consumer products company that has a very simple mission to reimagine shopping, entertainment, and social media as one thing. Now, that is one sentence that says it all, but there's a lot in between all of that, that, that we do to actually design, bring products to market, fulfill to customers, whether it's wholesale or DTC, um, but at the core of what we do is most of our sales happen through live streaming, whether it's on interactive television or today on small screens on our own live stream platform. Very good. No, hey, look, we are about to dig into it. So I'm glad uh, we were able to get that one sentence. So let, let's let's also take a step back here. You know, can you provide us that overview and history of the company? You know, what, what was that original problem that Excel was looking to solve? So we started the company about 12 years ago, and we saw two, two very disruptive forces that were impacting the industry back then. And this sounds silly, but e-commerce was just emerging. Uh, there were a lot of CEOs in the consumer space that actually believed that people would never buy apparel over e-commerce platforms back then. Uh, and there was this new thing that was beginning to happen and it was called social media. Uh, and we had a sense that these two forces coming together were about to change everything. And we formed this company to, to be a solution provider in what we saw as a new channel of distribution and very, very early on social commerce coming. Now, like most things, it took a lot longer for social commerce to get there, but it's actually happening now in real time at a very rapid speed. So how would you say that initial thesis has changed over time? So, you know, there were a couple of things that we, we thought about um, as, as we, we began to think about, well, what are the implications of this new thing, social media, and how will that change the way people think about shopping and in fact, shop. And uh, the conclusion that we came to back then is we were going to move into this cycle of see now, buy now. And, and certainly that has happened. Um, with that to succeed, you need a very fast supply chain. That's why uh, companies that are, um, Manufacturing goods, say, in China and shipping direct here to the U.S. are winning because they have fast supply chains and they're shipping goods direct to consumer. Uh, it's a little more challenging to do that here in the U.S. because of the long lead times in supply chain. So we, we did a little experimenting with um, supply chain um, speed and built a fast to market capability about four or five years ago. It cost millions of dollars to set it up and tried to bring that 
to the department store channel. And for many reasons, we realized that it just couldn't work in the department store channel given the way they operate, the way they're set up. They can't, most department stores can't ship individually to stores. So you have to go from say a distribution center either overseas to their DC or an an interim uh, distribution center that you would bring the goods in yourself. And there was too much time lost in all of that. They're just not set up really to do it. And um, the, the change in the, in, in the strategy over the years has been, uh, we knew that we had to do everything to get direct to consumer and just uh, do it ourselves. And, and probably the best example of, of this type of setup being executed best is by Sheehan. Um, you know, they have, for the most part, two to three weeks lead time on product. They're shipping duty-free out of Hong Kong, uh, and that is the setup. We have our own version of that. We are setting up in Tijuana where we can ship duty-free regardless of where the goods are made uh, to any consumer so long as the purchase price is less than $800. And we see that as a competitive advantage uh, at least over the next two to three years because uh, very few of our peers are setting up to do that. Got it. So let's, I want to, I want to, understand the company's business strategy a little bit because when you first go on Excel brands website or you know people first think about it they think of all these brands that are under the Excel uh, banner right so can you what was that initial brand that kind of launched Excel into kind of the public eye for pe- that people really knew and then what was kind of the strategy with adding on all these other brands within Excel so um you know, it's interesting. There's been some confusion about what is Excel's actual business model because um, I'm probably best known as the guy that recapped candy shoes and created Iconics brand group with, uh, with, Cole, uh, Neil, with Neil Cole. And um, when we started Excel, I, most people thought we were a licensing company and it's never really been that we're, we're a full service consumer products company. We design, we can import goods. Um, we have different business models under which we supply uh, very various different channels, uh, but we're, we're really more of a vertical operating company than a licensing company today. So I think that has, has created some confusion from, from the outset you know, about what Excel actually does. And then if, if, if you think about what, what, what was the one that launched us, uh, it was Isaac Mizrahi. Um, Isaac is truly one of a kind. He is, he's a true Renaissance man, a creative genius. He's a playwright, he's an author, he's a designer, um, he's an actor. He's really uh, very unusual and um, tremendous awareness for Isaac, 86% awareness amongst women in the United States. And the company was troubled when we acquired it. And it was a very quick turnaround. We approached uh, QVC where he was distributing at the time and struggling uh, with a new way to think about the business. And uh, we never looked 
back for a minute. Uh, the, the business took off. It's now one of the leading um, apparel brands on QVC, largest audience share. Uh, we're always ranked number one or number two on the network. Uh, so it's been a great, great run with them and a uh, great partnership. We've done uh, many transactions with them and uh, they're true collaborators, great partners. And speaking of which, because I might as well ask it now, you know, because um, the company recently announced on, I think it was uh, May 31st, 2022, that WHP uh, Global acquired a controlling stake in the Isaac Mizrahi fashion brand from Excel. So can you ex- give us a little color on this transaction and what this means for Excel? Um, yes. So, you know, first, uh, this was not a, a transaction that we were in the market. Uh, there was no process. Um, it was an unsolicited offer, and um, the offer was good for us and good for WHP. Uh, I've known the CEO of WHP for many years, and um, they were looking for a brand like Isaac and needed to have an operating partner stay in to run it, particularly with something as specialized as live streaming, uh, its concentration at uh, QVC. Uh, coming into this current economic cycle, we thought it would make a lot of sense for us to take some chips off the table, delever the company, uh, get positioned uh, for strength uh, or with strength on the go forward. And um, now in retrospect, uh, it was one of the smartest things that we've done uh, here. It, it's been great for the WHP guys, good for us. Uh, there's a tremendous opportunity for us now with HSN. And we needed capital for all the new programs that we're launching there. Uh, soon uh, you will see a series of announcements about uh, what we're doing there. And so it, 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 it all happened at just the right time. Absolutely. Because, I mean, was one of the key takeaways, when, you know, like anybody that goes in and looks at, you know, look, take a quick look at income statement and everything. Like since once pandemic hit, I mean, it, it, it for all intents and purposes, it was rough, right? Like, oh, no. Oh, no question, Bob. It, it's it's um, the company was profitable from day one. Mm-hmm. And we had consistent earnings. Um, COVID hit us, it was hard. It was hard on QVC. Uh, QVC had uh, additional complications during COVID in that a major warehouse facility burned to the ground, uh, which, which made logistics even more complicated for them. Uh, which, which caused a loss in sales, particularly in the Isaac brand. All of our inventory was in that warehouse. Uh, it's not the case with uh, another large apparel brand that we have there called Lori Goldstein. Um, and um, that with the, the absolute just zero sales happening in all of our other non-essential retailers, it was it was a really challenging time, hard getting people in the office. And if you're not in the business, uh, it is not easy to run a creative process, which is 80% of the engine here remotely. 
and it was it was it was a challenging time for sure. And we're still feeling uh, the implications of, of COVID because it it isn't over. What's happening in the market today is a lot of um, retailers and wholesalers tried to get ahead of the the delays in production and and chased inventory, maybe over inventory. And now we've all sailed into this economy that looks like it's going into a recession. I'm still not sure if we're in a recession or not because there's no definition for it anymore. <laughs> uh, but um, it sure feels like we're heading into a recession. Things are slowing down. And, um, and the challenges that come with that is retailers are cutting orders, canceling goods, and, and we're just all dealing with it. It's, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, no. Actually, this was another uh, rabbit hole I wanted to go down with you, you know, just talking about the industry as a whole and how retail is, it, like you said, it is going through this challenging period. So what do you think the future of retail looks like in the next one to three years? And, and how is Excel positioned for this new retail environment? So the last five years has presented tremendous change and disruption in retailing. And the acceleration of change is increasing literally every day. It, and it looks like um, the new next channel of distribution, the new big disruptor will be live streaming and social commerce. And, and that's going to come in various different forms. If what's happening in Asia is any indication, live streaming in three years has gone from nothing to 20% of all e-commerce. And that's likely to happen here. And it's interesting for me to see 12 years ago when I spoke to CEOs at major department stores and I asked a question about e-commerce, they would all say, no, it's not important. People aren't buying apparel on e-commerce. It's, you know, it's good for household goods like toothpaste. And um, here we are, we're hearing the same conversation about live streaming and social commerce. Uh, but it's coming for sure. People are, are tired of looking at static images. They want more information. If that wasn't true, uh, YouTube wouldn't exist. And, and today, um, you know, I have a couple of newborns and uh, when, the, when the stuff comes and I have to put it together, I, I don't even bother looking at instructions anymore. I go right to YouTube because you can find anything and everything you want. And there's someone showing you how to do it. So uh, the same thing's happening with shopping and everyone's experimenting with it, trying to figure it out. Uh, Amazon recently announced that this is mission critical for them. Um, and it's hard to tell, some are dropping. Uh, Facebook just discontinued it because Facebook doesn't have the ecosystem to win at it. Um, the reason it's working in Asia is you have companies like Alibaba that have the entire ecosystem. They have product, they have fulfillment capability, they have the technology, and they have the audience. So that works. And the challenge for most retailers, because they are not media companies, they don't understand how to build audience. And we, we are, as a company, advising some major retailers, one in particular, and we're, we're, we're trying to get them to think like a media company and act like a retailer. 
because the tech that it takes to execute this is part of it, but the, but the rest of it is understanding how to produce the shows and um, how to build audience, how to create a destination that people actually want to come to, whether it's weekly or daily. And, and that's something that the interactive television networks like HSN and QVC have been doing incredibly well for many, many years. And of course, they're owned by media companies. So they know how to do that. For sure. So, okay. So let's break down what you mean by live streaming. Like I could, you know, I, I obviously I've tuned into live streaming on YouTube. Live streaming has, it's two components to it. There's in the version of live streaming that is designed for commerce, there is an intent for someone to come to that live stream for the purpose of learning about a product, being entertained by the presenter and buying, not watching a show and you can click to it. The technology has to be one click and not navigate the viewer away from the show. So you're watching someone presenting product on the right side of your screen is the product. You click on it, click, it goes in your cart, but you're still watching. And that is very different from clicking at the bottom of your screen and buying something while you're watching a show because this no one telling you about that product. You're just seeing a visual on it. Or you may be seeing it on a celebrity on the show, but they're not explaining the product. So it's, it's a very, very different process uh, of selling. And some of the, the production tricks, if you will, is to create a sense of urgency and a fear of missing out um, when you're selling. That's FOMO is a very important part of selling live and it is working well with um, streetwear because streetwear is designed as drops. You know, it's we're dropping today. This, there's only 500 units available. That's it. Everyone knows and it's a bidding war to get it. It's, it's sort of like uh, when Ferrari or McLaren or any one of the supercar companies drops a special car. There's always more people uh, trying to get that car than, than there is available in the production line. So it's, it's knowing how to do that and it's creating a destination for people to come and shop at a given time um, to see someone that they really like watching and, and give them an opportunity to buy something at a great price. So that's, that's, those are the keys to it. And, and, and that seems to be missing from what a lot of people are doing out there experimenting with this. They just don't understand the fundamentals of, of making this work. There is another version of live streaming and that's not really commerce driven, it's more informational driven. So it could be um, <clears throat> a, a podcast 
uh, about your, your product, or it could be a video that is storytelling about uh, the company and the product. And, and those, those types of live streaming events are designed more for branding and for customer engagement and customer loyalty building than actual commerce. And to win today and to think like a media company, you have to do all of those. Absolutely. So. It, it almost sounds like it's taking that QVC model into the 22nd century. In- Correct. Correct. Right? Yes. And quite frankly, QVC is experimenting themselves now with live streaming over small screens. So what tech, what, who's, what tech is it that people are using? Is it, is it through YouTube or is it through something else? No, actually there are companies that are, are emerging uh, and there's been a lot of capital invested in live stream technologies over the last year. I last I read over 9 billion. Um, there's a company called Van Bowser out of um, Sweden, they um, have the video technology, but they don't have the social commerce piece of it. Um, and then there's Talkshop Live. Um, they're building audience. They're having great success in, in music and um, less in, in um, consumer goods, but they, they are building a destination and they do understand building audience they too only have the video piece of it. It's the one click video piece. Uh, the pieces that make it work, and, and we've built this entire uh, tech stack, is for the most part over the last hundred years, retailing has been about the one to the many, including QDC. Social commerce is about the many to the many. And that's what's going to ultimately change and disrupt uh, retail again going forward. And the technology that you need is you you have to have the ability to enable the one and the many to create content. And then you need the technology, sort of like affiliate technology, that can track attribution so that if Bob wants to make a video about Rob's product, I can pay Bob a marketing fee for anyone that Bob forwards the content to. That gets a little more complicated than just having technology that that can stream video. We we built that with our Longer Burger brand. We've We've been working uh, through the technology, perfecting it, debugging it. Um, we have over 5,000 nano influencers that um, earn extra money, marketing fees, for doing nothing more than inviting people to our live stream shows. I got to ask you, you know, because I, I go, on, go on the company website, go to our investor relations. And yeah, it says right there, you know, a live streaming company. But don't people must get confused about that all the time from an investor perspective? Like, wait, what? You have this, you got all these brands, but you're also you got this tech component. Like, what I don't understand. I mean, does that that must come up all the time? It does. And we we say that you know we are a company that has been evolving around this idea of 
reimagining shopping entertainment and social media. Uh, the live streaming technology that exists today, most of it has all come about over the last two years. And going back 12 years ago, when we started, we had a massive television studio on 10th Avenue in New York City. It cost $3 million to set up lighting, sound, raised floor. Um, it was wildly expensive, satellite trucks on the street whenever we did a live show. Uh, today, it's an iPhone and a ring light, and you can do it anywhere. It, it's it's it, technology, uh, you know, as it evolves, it, it makes things much more efficient typically. And, and that's what we're seeing. So um, true live streaming over new technologies is something that we really started doing about two and a half years ago when we acquired Longaburger. And the reason we targeted Longaburger was because Longaburger had 100,000 saleswomen before we acquired it. Unfortunately, the company went through a bankruptcy, uh, but we knew there was a community. And we knew that we could build audience around that community for live streaming. So, so that's, that's why we made that acquisition and the business is going well for us. The tech is built. Now we're going to take that tech stack and begin to use that for our other brands. Got it. Okay. All right. So this is actually I'm I'm glad we're having this conversation today so that we can we can clear because I'm I, I'm almost positive there's folks that are listening to this that maybe have heard of Excel and be like, oh now now I see what's going on. Now I kind of see where we're going here. But even taking a quick step back, because you know, right now you have the the number of brands that you have on on your website right now, you know, is part of the growth strategy now saying, hey, look, we have here's the brands that we have. We have the tech for live streaming. Here's some of the sales that we're seeing as a result of having built this community and the tech for it. You know, now are you trying to attract more brands within the the Excel brands infrastructure, or is it now working with just existing brands on licensing deals and licensing the tech or bringing it? Like, what what's the strategy now moving forward? So the strategy is first, how do we grow our brands? And what, what the live streaming platform can do for us is it can bring us live on-air guests that we could not get before because of geographic challenges. You know, one of QVC and HSN's challenges uh, prior to COVID was it was hard for talent to go either to Tampa or Westchester, PA, uh, they, they just didn't want to do it. Um, and we can, we can do live shows now from anywhere. So it's, it, it's, it's changed the playing field for people that are willing to actually do it now. And some of the new announcements that we are about to make are with um, either designers or television stars that have five, 10 million followers, um, highly engaged uh, base of followers that are credible, authentic voices in whatever a particular category is that we now can team up with and live stream and they could do it from their boat, their house, their car. It, I mean, literally, uh, it, 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 you can do it from anywhere now. And, and the more real you make it, 
and the more engaging it is. So what does the competitive landscape look like? And, and, and in particular, you know, what's the moat around building? Like how, how hard and difficult is it to build this live streaming technology? Can any of, you know, Excel's competitors create a similar type of tech and now just have all their brands pushing it out to whatever communities they build there? So um, there's a couple of pieces to it. It's, it's one, you have to have the tech you have to know how to produce the shows, and then you have to have the ability to fulfill product uh, and get it to the customer fast. So if, if, you, if you have that whole ecosystem, um, that's the unfair advantage. And, and if you really understand trade rules well, now the real unfair advantage is uh, if you can bring goods in uh, either from Hong Kong or Canada or Mexico, duty-free to the consumer, so long as that sales price is under $800, um, that's the big win. That's the new model that's, that's going to work. And there, of course, you're working on vertical margins. So that's, we have, we've spent millions of dollars over the last uh, two and a half years building out the tech piece of this. Um, and as a company, I can't think of anyone else uh, that can say they have over 10,000 hours of programming time uh, over the last 10 years uh, doing this, selling this way. Um, we, we know what works. We know how to produce the shows. And uh, I think we're, we're positioned um, better than most um, for what's coming. For sure. So my next question, I asked this to everybody on here. So, you know, we talked about the opportunity we talked about you know all some of the exciting things that are that are coming and that the company's been working on but you know in your opinion just play devil's advocate here what, what would you say are some of the company's downside risks so um it's a good question you know when when you look at our balance sheet uh, i think we're positioned well company uh, has zero debt uh we don't even have working capital debt um we, we finance all of our own inventory and AR, uh, that's likely to change because the wholesale component of our business is growing and, and it's, it's actually more efficient for us to get a working capital facility in place. And um, we have uh, a lot of cash and AR and current inventory. We're positioned well, given all the disruption that's going on from a balance sheet perspective. That said, uh, you know, this year, like most, we have our challenges in the wholesale business, retailers canceling orders, factories delivering late, late deliveries, open the window for more cancellations. It's a, everyone's dealing with this in virtually every category. You know, so everyone is you know, dealing with all the supply chain disruption and late deliveries and retailers doing everything they can to reduce their inventories, not take any more goods in. Uh, uh, but uh, we're, we're in a very good position, uh, one, to grow our brands um, as things begin, begin to normalize. I believe uh, what we're going to see is uh, retailers are, are not taking inventory, reducing inventory everywhere, almost everyone from Target to Walmart to Macy's, even QVC, all over inventory. And managing through that at the moment, of course, margins are 
compressing as they discount goods to move it. But I think what's going to happen is as we go into January, then it's going to be sort of the opposite. Oops, <laughs> we have to chase goods. So um, you know, as a as a supplier, it's how much risk do you want to take on the oops, um, you know, and and will will the economy come back? Because you don't you you don't want to be in the same position the retailers are in, where there's no inventory available to sell them when you, when you know it's pretty likely that they'll be chasing goods. So we're making all of those decisions in in real time. Um, I would say, despite you know great balance sheet, um, there's nothing uh, in this world without risk. But the one thing I've learned over the years as an entrepreneur and um, the CEO of a public company for many years, uh, when the economy is tough and there's a lot of uncertainty, particularly geopolitical uncertainty, uh, it's a great place to be when you don't have debt. Amen. Yes. A- amen to that for sure. Um, hey, Robert, you know, I, I usually ask this earlier on in the interview. I can't believe I, I'm saving it till now, but you alluded to a little bit about your background prior to founding Excel. But, you know, what, give, give us some more. You know, what were you doing before that? So um, I actually started my career uh, on the consulting side. I started at Deloitte uh, and I, I uh, left Deloitte and became an asset manager uh, for the Kuwaiti Investment Office. And, um, and then found myself at Prudential Securities uh, underwriting bonds backed by intellectual property. And, and did all the early um, music deals, film site deals, and did the first trademark deal. And it was for a designer named Bill Blass. And I became uh, fascinated by the industry and decided that we would start buying consumer products companies and uh, had an opportunity to, to recap candy shoes and create iconics and that company was formed um, to solve a problem uh, that existed at that time in in the marketplace and uh, the last 20 years has been uh, about buying consumer products companies finding disruption and solutions for what the industry was facing very good. All right. I only got a couple more questions for you, but, uh, you know, where, from what you can tell us, what, where do you see the company in three to five years? And what would you say are some of the inflection points that'll get you there? So um, our biggest challenge now is adding volume into our wholesale division. There's a lot of overhead. Um, it's, it is a bit of a field of dreams. You have to build it and they will come. Uh, it just takes a minimum amount of people to actually design, source, warehouse, and do all of the things that it takes to bring products to market and actually get them delivered to a customer. And um, there's two ways we can do that. We can grow organically, which we are doing um, with our, our brands, uh, and or acquire it. And um, you know, we are certainly looking for uh, an opportunistic acquisition. As a company, we have acquired something just about every two years. And um, we expect that we will continue to do that. And um, we have in the pipeline now four or five transactions with our current brands that will add the volume that we need for our wholesale business 
It is all powered by live streaming, uh, either on interactive television or, or other channels powered by our technology. And um, we would expect over the next five years, the goal is uh, to add um, between 30 and 50 million of sales volume to the company each year over the next five years and, and drop 12% of that down to the EBITDA line. Once we pass, say, uh, 40 million of wholesale volume. So, that, and that's the inflection point. That's when it really starts to translate into strong earnings. Absolutely. So you've been a public company now for a while. You know, how much, if at all, have your shareholders or potential shareholders or folks that are been in the company for a long time or on shared in a long time, how much have they influenced your decision-making process, if at all? So um, that's an interesting question. And, and a bit more complicated for me than most public company CEOs. We are a closely held company. Insiders uh, control about 67% of the business. I am uh, the largest shareholder in the company. And there are several other large shareholders that are insiders. And um, we, of course, are all, um, we have a goal of enhancing shareholder value. That's why we're, we're all doing this. And um, it, it creates a, a different level of conversation and, and pressure when it's your insider saying, okay, what, what are we doing? Where are we going? Um, and it's, it's never been a um, sprint for us. We, we knew this was a marathon. If you really look at the great companies like Michael Kors or even Kate Spade, those companies took 15 years from start to when they really became big companies. And uh, we've all had that view. Um, and then we have the normal sort of alignment that we have to have with the shareholders who are not insiders. And I would say that uh, like most good entrepreneurs, you know, I'm a good listener. Uh, I listen to what everyone has to say. It's I've always kind of led this way. It's a bit of a Jesuit approach. I don't care what you believe, just tell me why. Uh, and if it makes sense, uh, I'm going to listen to it and probably do it. So um, we do have shareholders that have great insight and great comments. And you know, I take those and, and if I don't agree, I'll say why. That's, that's the Jesuit approach. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, I, I would say that you know, anyone that, that's been running a company of any size, um, if you're not open to listening uh, to suggestions, um, I, I think you know, you, you're, you're limiting sort of um, your ability to, to see what's out there that, that may be coming that, that you missed. So um, that's there, there you go. All right. So to close this out here today, um, this is the same question I ask everybody to, to close out here. You know, how would you, how would you rate your experience being a public company CEO? It's not an easy job. You got to deal with a lot of extra 
<laughs> than private company CEOs. So what's this experience been like for you? So I've been doing it a long time. It's not my first time. Um, it's, I would say that being an entrepreneur and, and being the CEO of a public company, neither one of them are an easy thing uh, to do. Uh, as an entrepreneur, you're often risking everything uh, and, and working 24 seven, 365. And being the CEO of a public company is very similar, uh, except you have the added pressure of, of um, having a shareholder base that you're, you're responsible for uh, all of the actions that you take. Uh, so it, it does create um, a different kind of pressure, but it's still very similar pressure to what owners of private companies have. It's, it's, it's not for everyone, but it's something that I've been doing for, for so many years. Um, I've become <laughs> sort of accustomed to it. And, and if you believe in what you're doing and you love what you're doing, um, the pressure's not so bad. If, if, uh, if you don't really believe it and you don't really love it, I don't know how you could do this. So Robert, with that, where can our audience go and find more information on Excel Brands? So the uh, best way to find information on us is to go to our website, www.xlbrands.com or .gov. Very good. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck, stay safe. And I look forward to our next update. You too, Bob. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.